So today we have a phenomenal, phenomenal, as I build it, a mega workshop. Well, uh, these three fine uh, gentlemen, which they'll introduce themselves, but I'm very happy to partner with uh, Jay Kruger. He is a phenomenal resource here in New York City, which he'll be telling about, plus a, just a, a sterling human being and a good friend. So please, uh, Jake, introduce yourself and the two gentlemen next to you. I, I don't want to screw things up. So sure. Uh, so please give these gentlemen a nice round of applause. So first off, thank you to Stephen and thank you, all of you, uh, for inviting us to be here. So you basically got in front of you the TV department at Jacob Kruger Studio, which is, which is our screenwriting school. Um, and we've got both TV comedy and TV drama, um, which is really more about the format you're writing in. Are you writing in a 30-minute format or are you writing in an hour-long format? It's not about the, the topic you're writing about. It's about the, the execution of that topic. Uh, so, for example, in, in Jerry's TV comedy class right now, and you guys should, you should IMDb these guys. They're it's incredible that we are able to get them to teach for us. Jerry was, has been a showrunner for the last 25 years. If it was a hit show in the 80s or 90s, he was on it. George is well, tremendous background in, in television drama as well as action movies. He's, he's been involved in some of the biggest part of Sam Raimi's inner circle. So very exciting people that you should pick their brains today. So when you're thinking about what you're going to write, I don't want you to think about, you know, well, I'm going to get into TV because that's where the opportunities are or that's where the more money is because there's a lot of crossing of genre now. That was, that was your experience, that George crossed over from de- doing TV drama to doing huge budget action movies. And you've got guys that he worked with like Robert Orchie who just did the, the recent Spider-Man who is continuing to bop back and forth between those two worlds. So there's a lot of mobility now. You want to be thinking about what do you want to say? What is the TV show? What is the series? What is the episode that is burning in your heart that you're desperate to get out? Because if you write the thing that's most likely to get you success, you know, the commercial sellout script, the chances are there's not going to be a lot of you in it, right? And if there's not a lot of you in it, then most likely what you're going to be doing is kind of executing the same formulas that everybody else is executing. And if you're executing the same formulas everybody else is executing, why the hell should they hire you? They can hire George or Jerry. You want to be writing the thing that only you could write so that when a producer sees it, they go, there's only one way that I can get this. I've got to hire this writer because I can't hire George or Jerry because only this writer has this very specific voice. So you want to think about what is it that you want to say right now? What is exciting to you? What's the thing that's burning in your heart right now? And what's the right format for it? You're going to write about something that's really dark, but should it be a comedy? Should it be a half-hour format? Should it be a drama in an hour format? Should it be a dramedy? You have so much freedom. You know, Orange is the New Black, hugely successful show. It's a dramedy set in prison. But it's really about telling the stories of, of minority women, women who are a victim of society in many ways. Uh, it's actually a very serious topic, but it's handled as a dramedy. So I want you to, I want you to free yourself from, like, from the, I need to write the thing that people are looking for, I need to write the thing. Because by the time you're done writing it, it's not going to be hot anyway, anymore anyway. 
if you want to really think about how Hollywood works, imagine all the most popular kids from high school, right? Give them unlimited money and unlimited power and send them all to a city on the West Coast. And, and that's Hollywood. And what's bad about that is that we have to deal with those people. But what's good about that is it means that tastes change like the wind. If you're trying to chase the trend, if you're trying to chase what you're supposed to be doing, you're not going to get there because the, the trend is going to shift. The only hope that you have is to write something that only you could write, is to write the thing that really captures who you are, that really shows what you can do that nobody else can do. And then you wait until the luck and the writing catch up, right? Until the thing you wrote becomes the thing that's hot. But what's really exciting, and now more than ever we're seeing this, is sometimes producers are saying, I don't want to see the script that I can make. I want to see the script that I wish I could make so then I can hire you to write the script that I actually can make. There are two different ways to break into TV, and these guys are going to talk a lot more about them. You can break in as a staff writer, or you can break in by selling a pilot, in which case you generally end up being a staff writer anyway. Even if you write, you know, the next Modern Family, you write, you know, a pilot for something that is going to be a huge hit, most likely you will not be the showrunner on that pilot. They're going to bring in somebody with a lot more experience who has been in that position before, but there's a very good chance that you'll get to be a, a staff writer on it. So there are these two different ways to break in, and they require, it's a different approach. It used to be a couple of years ago that there was only one way to break in. It used to be absolutely impossible for a young writer to sell a pilot, and that's changed a lot. It used to be that the only way to break in was to write two spec scripts, and this is a really bizarre thing, and you still need to know about this. You have to write spec script for a, the series that you don't want to write for. So this sounds crazy, but this is the truth. So if you want to write for Modern Family, you don't write your spec script for Modern Family, because Modern Family won't read it. They're afraid of being sued. They're afraid that some writer who doesn't really understand that they have a team of writers brainstorming every idea possible. In fact, if you do a really good job on your spec script, there's a very good chance that you are actually already writing something they've thought of because it means you're looking at what they're already doing and you're seeing what they're already doing and you're building off of that. And there's a good chance they've already thought of that. They might have thought of the moment, the line, and you might see it on TV and be like, those jerks, they stole my script. And so they're terrified of being sued. So what you do is you write two spec scripts for different, two different shows. And this is really important. If you're going this route, do not write the episode that will show at Sweeps Week, right? Do not write the episode where the main character dies. Do not write the episode with the incredibly famous guest star, unless guest stars are a normal thing in that show. What they're looking for is, can you reproduce a show that they could just pop into their lineup and nobody would know a different writer had written it? They're looking for, can you write our characters the way our characters talk? Can you write the world the way our characters experience that world? 
they're writing, do you understand where our act breaks happen? Do you understand what the shape of the piece is? How the episodes happen? What can happen in our show and what cannot happen? They're looking for how well can you write within their world. So if you're going that way, it's a little different than if you're going with a pilot. If you're going that way, what you're really saying is not, this is me. You're saying, look how well I can do you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to show who you are. You want to show your creativity. You want to show, you know, that little special extra bit of oomph you've got. But you really are showing them how well you can be you within the container that they've already created. If you want to break in that way, you need two really great spec scripts. It is going to be a full-time job to get someone to read these scripts. You are going to work your butt off to open that door. It's not going to open easily. But it can be opened. People are opening that door every single day. People are getting hired to write these shows. They are going to take a look at those scripts. They're not even going to read the whole script if you don't grab them. They're going to read the first few pages of one of those scripts. And if you haven't grabbed them and made them say, Oh my God, this person's wonderful. This is great. If you haven't grabbed them from the very, very start, they're never going to make it through your, those two spec scripts. And they're not going to read your next project. So you need to make sure that you're really ready to go. You need to make sure you've had professional feedback on your piece that you know from someone who trusts you trust, somebody that, that has done this, uh, not from your writer's group where everybody is at the same level as you, somebody who has been doing this for a long time and, and someone who's been doing it currently, right? You don't want to, to be learning about what's needed in a spec script from someone who last wrote for TV in 1982 because things are changing. You need to get your comments from someone who's close in the industry. So you want to make sure it's ready to go. Two scripts. And it might take you writing five or ten scripts to get there, right? Like, not everything you write is going to be great. And once you get that door open, you want to make sure you can go through it boldly, right? You don't want to get into the writer's room and you'd be like, I spent two years on my spec script and boy, is it good. And I actually got hired. Two years of nonstop work. Okay, congratulations. You're on the writing team and you're in the room and they're like, okay, we need this next week. And you've never had to write a script in a week and you don't know how to do it. And then you're going to have a very, very short career. You've done all that work to open the door without being ready to get through it. So every single thing you write, whether it sells or not, whether it opens the door for you or not, whether it, whether it works or not, is actually preparing you for that career because that's what you really want. You don't want to sell one script. You want to have a career. You want to become part of a writer's room. You want to, to be part of a team. You want to work on good series. You want to work your way up from whatever you're lucky enough to get on to writing the series that you want to write. And the way you do that is by being ready when you arrive. So the first way in is to write a spec script. The second way to break in now is with a pilot. And even a year ago, that wasn't really possible. But there's been a shift, a kind of radical shift, where producers are now reading pilots. But you better be able to follow that pilot up with two solid spec scripts. In other words, you better be able to go, here's a great pilot. Look how well this pilot works. Look how wonderful this pilot is. Wow, this is something we could put on the air. Look at how great this person is with character. 
Look at how they understand the engine of the piece. We're going to talk more about how an engine works in, in a, a sitcom or in a TV drama. Um, but basically, you want your pilot, someone should be able to read your pilot and imagine what the next eight years of your show is going to look like. You want to make that promise that, oh, I know what I need to do. You don't want them to read your pilot and go, this is beautiful, but I don't know what the next episode is. If you want to understand engine, the easiest, episode, the easiest way to understand it is to think about Gilligan's Island. Because everybody's seen Gilligan's Island because Gilligan's Island ran for about 200 years. The engine of Gilligan's Island, what was the engine? What was going to happen every single episode? They're going to try to get off the island. So even if your great showrunner dies in the middle of production, you know what you need to tell your writing team to do. Okay, guys, go brainstorm stupid ways to get off the island, and we'll pick one for each episode. And what's going to happen in every episode just when they're about to get off the island? Gilligan's going to screw it up. So all you have to do is generate how Gilligan's going to screw it up, and you know you can write Gilligan's Island for the next 200 years. Who's seen Arrested Development? Same engine. Every episode, Michael is going to save the family. Every episode, the parents are going to play the children against each other and everyone's going to have their own plans that completely unravel what Michael's trying to do. Do you see it's the same engine? The engine, instead of getting off the island, saving the family. But you know what you need to research. You know where you need to brainstorm. Even if your showrunner quits, your showrunner dies, your showrunner develops alcohol addiction you know that you can continue to generate that series. So when a producer looks at your pilot, they're looking for two things. Number one, they're looking for, is it cool? Is it awesome? Is it something I want to put on the air? Is it exciting? Does it have great characters? Are these characters that I want to spend time with? You know, would I invite these characters into my living room every single week? And then they're looking at, can I see the journey? Can I see how am I going to produce this for eight years so I can really make money on it? And if you're doing those two things in your pilot, you've got a shot. So you, you either need two spec episodes saying, look at how well I do what you do, or you need a pilot saying, look what I can do, but look how well it serves your needs. Any questions about that so far? Yes? One way or the other, what do you guys think? Is, there, is one way better than the other as far as getting looked at? When I was coming up in the 80s, as Jake was saying, nobody would look at a pilot by an unproduced writer. Now they will, but it's such a long shot that somebody's going to love that enough to buy it, produce it, and make it. You've got to be able to show them that you can, as we said, color within the lines, that you can uh, deliver pre-existing circumstances. If you're only going to do one, which probably isn't enough, a spec script. Hour long, people every couple, two, three years, they change what they want to read because they get bored because they're reading million scripts. So uh, I was telling Jake and Jerry earlier that you know at one point there were, it was uh, just spec scripts, then it was one act plays, then it was short stories, and now it, right now it's pilots. So they want to read pilots um, uh, as the first thing they read, and then they want to see your specs. Um, so you, they can see that you can actually you know, be on, on a show. Um, they're not looking necessarily to buy the pilot, but they want to see your voice, your original voice, and if they can tell it on top of it, great. Um, but for, and, that, and again, remember, this could change next year. 
So um, it's uh, you know it, it's a constantly evolving and changing industry. But right now, if, I, if you were to write something, I would say for hour long, I would definitely make sure to have at least a pilot, and then have your two, one or two, but I can two. And I'd, in half hour, I'd go the other way. I would go the other way. I would start with the spec script. It's it's interesting in drama. You see a lot of playwrights getting snagged, yeah. and and it's something to think about again. What you really want to be doing is writing what you want to write. So if you're really a playwright and all you want to do is write plays, then what you should do is write plays. And yeah, work on a spec script, work on a pilot, but write your damn play and see if you can build a following as a playwright and magic sometimes happens and you get snagged. I have a great example of that, which is Paul Willem. So he wrote a play called Fire of North and it was a play and it started getting... At first, everybody read it and was like, I don't want to do this as a play or as a movie or anything. I want nothing to do with it. They're just laying around. Finally, somebody saw it and read it, and that led to him getting an opportunity to work on House of Cards. So he obviously wound up being the showrunner of House of Cards. He then has a writing staff of six people, four of them playwrights. So four playwrights, all from New York. The other two writers are from L.A. and are, are television writers, and they brought him out here. And that doesn't mean you guys should run out and write plays if you're not playwrights. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think it's very different in TV comedy, right? They're not really snagging up playwrights. It has happened, and um, um, Mindy Kaling got her start by writing a little play that she did here in town. Um, um, she and her friend were uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They played Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and I never saw it, but that got them attention. So there's no, and that's one of the things that everybody here is going to be um, repeating and repeating and repeating that there's no formula, there's no rule. Well, there is one rule. You got to write something. No matter what, no matter what of these accidental circumstances, you got to put your butt in the chair. My first boss in the 80s was Norman Lear. Mar Norman Lear, uh, uh, you guys must have heard of Norman Lear. He's still like 90 and still doing stuff. But he said, what well, I'll never forget this, I don't know how relevant it is, but you'll laugh. He said that every successful comedy scene has the same formula two Jews in a room fighting and they're both right. <laughs> and, and we can get into that later if we talk about specific dynamics and relationships. You must have conflict. What I was going to say is he named his company Tandem T.A.T. If you ever see the reruns of the T.A.T., Tandem, because he was in partnership with another guy. But T.A.T. was some Yiddish expression that I don't speak Yiddish, but Tuchus auf Tisch. I thought Tisch was a table, but I guess in Yiddish it's a chair. Put your ass in a chair. <laughs> and so if nothing else comes out of today, for me... If I was in your shoes, the thing I would want to hear from somebody that's been doing it and doing it and doing it, I, I want to demythologize the process. I want you to know it ain't easy. Even if you have been doing it for 20 years or 25 years like I have, every time you face that blank page, it's intimidating, it's tough. If you told anybody here or anybody out in the world, a banker or a Bill Gates, go sit in a room and don't come out until you have a good idea. You, it's not easy. So, so if you ever find yourself scratching your head, struggling, I don't have it, or it takes 10 minutes to think of a joke, that's normal. Even uh, pro professionals do that. So if, if that's one thing that I'd like you to leave here, knowing that it's not easy. But then the, that the other thing is, took us off tish. You got to just sit down and you got to do it. And we'll, you know, as we talk, you'll decide. Oh, I want to do a spec. Oh, I want to do a pilot. Doesn't matter as much as doing it. So, so that might sound obvious, but a lot of people start and don't finish. A lot of people dream but don't actualize. The only way to do it is ask in a chair and, and do the right, do the work. Yeah, and, and don't try to do it well. If you're trying to write well, it becomes very hard to write, um, especially when you're young and you don't have the craft yet. Like if you want to learn to dribble a basketball, 
you wouldn't start by dribbling a basketball well. You would start by dribbling a basketball like I dribble a basketball. But if you dribble a basketball enough, soon you can, you can dribble a basketball without even thinking about it. Instead of trying to write well, trying to write a lot is going to build your craft so much faster. Jerry said something to me when I first met him um, that, that, I thought was, that I thought was so great. He said, first write it true, then write it funny. Thinking about that, that you have plenty of time to make it good. But that what really matters is that you're getting something on the page that you care about. And then you figure out how to make it good, how to make it funny, how to make it dramatic. Then you figure out how to, how to make it commercial, how to make it pitchable, how to, you know, how to build the engine into it, all those other things. But you want to have a, a career. And career is not about being a one-hit wonder. You know, it, I think a lot of us, it, it's easy. I know even at the beginning of my career, I was like, I'm going to sell one script. You know, and then if a script didn't sell, I felt... I felt like such a failure, as opposed to thinking of, I want to be a writer, which means that five days a week, my butt's going to be on a chair, and I'm going to be generating something, whether it's wonderful or terrible. I think the great difference between professional writers who succeed and, and writers who fail is professional writers who succeed are more comfortable writing badly more often. We write a lot of really bad stuff. And by creating the volume of wonderfully terrible writing, you eventually get to a place where you go, oh, that's that joke that I was looking for. That's that one moment I was looking for. And when you finally do get hired, you really are ready to deal with being in a writer's room and having somebody say, oh, here's my terrible idea. You have to write this and bring it in next week. And being able to say, oh, good, I've had terrible ideas too. Let me do that. I can do that. I can turn that out in a week and be ready. I don't disagree with anything Jake is saying, but do keep in mind that because it's, not, it's all ineffable and it's not an exact science, there are going to be people who have different opinions. Um, um, and, and also remember that his genre, my genre, your genre are different. In, in the half-hour field, you're right, tell the story. Structure is everything, and we'll get into that too, but structure is everything. But there are going to be knuckleheads, and I call them knuckleheads, who will contradict that and say, um, oh, are you funny? Are you funny? Is this person funny, 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 funny? I would never hire on a basis of funny. Funny, you know, you got to be funny in, in the half-hour field, but uh, um, the, 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 that comes last, as Jake was implying. Get the story down first. Structure the story. Know the story. Give it a beginning, a middle, and an end. Give it a problem, a complication of that problem. Resolve that problem. And make sure you have that. And I do tell everybody. But not everybody would say this. But they're wrong. <laughs> um, get the story down first and then go back and make it funny. Because without a story, you don't have anything. You, you, it's just a loose collection of jokes. And nobody is going to care about the people. So, so um, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but structure is the most important thing. And I'm, I only mention this because there are some people that you might meet out in the world and some people that might even have had success. There are a lot of stand-up comedians that have good, high-paying jobs on sitcoms that cannot tell a story, that cannot create a character. But they, they're useful because at 2 in the morning when you need a joke to button the scene so everybody could go home, they smoke a joint and they come up with a joke. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we have this guy. But he couldn't write a script by himself. So 
I don't know if I made it clearer or, or made it more confusing, but I'm backing up what Jake is saying. Tell the story, then go back and make it funny in the half hour. Is that a hand? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to ask about playwrights. What do playwrights do that make them so attractive as television writers, and what lesson can these television writers take if there are no playwrights in the room? Be brilliant. <laughs> oh, is that it? Yeah, that's all. That's all. <laughs> I think that, you know, what difference is between um, film and, and hour-long specifically is just cost, especially now. Um, and talking to, I'm, not, I'm only talking Hollywood, not independent film. So, you know, Godzilla. And it was probably almost 200 million, I don't know what the exact budget was. And plus, I was 75 million in, in print and advertising, and et cetera. So there's huge amounts of money going to these things. TV, you don't get as much money. TV is close ups on everything. It's all about the characters and it's about the relationships. So you get a show like House of Cards, uh, which I think is a brilliant show. I love that show. Um, and it's all about people, like, it's the same sets. Like, they're literally in, like, five different rooms, but it's. Each, every, each time they're in that room, a complete different thing could be going on. And it's all, it has nothing to do with the room. There's no explosions in that show, really. Like, and I, I always say call it explosions or anything that's really drastic that happens. Like an actual explosion, a car chase, uh, you know, um, something like that. And I'm not, I don't want to give any spoilers. There's like, every once in a while there's something like, you're like, oh my god, I can't believe it. that just happened. But generally, in one episode, it's about the tension ratcheted up by the relationships that uh, you're following. So playwrights are very good at that. They have one, Jake can speak about this too, I think. Uh, they, they have their, you've got one stage and you've got to make the story happen right there in front of the audience. You can't, you know, you can't go to a lot of different places. You can't. So it's got to be focused on the character. I think why the playwrights, that doesn't mean, I mean, most people I worked with are not playwrights. I think it's a kind of something new that's, that's one of the things that's changing, especially as we get more, you know, distribution models like Netflix. Um, and you can be in New York, actually, which is great. Um, so that is kind of new. Um, actually, I think it's a cycle. My father-in-law was, was a screenwriter, and he was a, started out as a playwright. And then it went into the, uh, you know, like, Shane Black era, where, you know, $4 million of script and et cetera. Writing, trying to write commercial, big commercial action movies. The Weapon was his first movie. In fact, there's a line, Need the Weapon. I don't know if it, this is kind of a famous line, so you've you know, you heard it before, sorry. But he literally wrote, like, he was describing his house that's in the movie that's on the side of the hill. Um, and he, the line is something like, uh, uh, they drive up to a house that's so expensive, it's, um, it'll cost the exact amount of money I'm going to, the exact amount of, some million of dollars I'm going to get from selling this script. Like, wrote that line in the script. And, uh, and he was right. Um, it's very commercial. And now it's kind of, especially in TV, it's gone back to, like, getting people who, don't, who aren't trying to be commercial, but are trying to be real, truthful. And, like, that's why you get these shows. I mean, uh, Game of Thrones, even. Um, while it has all of the, you know, fantasy, medieval stuff going on, and they do have special effects, really it's about the relationships, which is why it's got a broader demographic. It's not just, like, you know, m males 13 to 24 or something. You know, it's got a much broader demographic because it's got, it's got the relationships of the characters and what's going to happen. So I, I think that's a change that I'm seeing at least an hour long. Whereas when I started, if I pitched something that was serialized in any way, they'd laugh me out of the room. It literally happened. I got, I got called in. I was working on a couple of shows. Yeah. And I got called in by Universal to pitch them. They're like, we're going to redo, uh, we're going to reboot Battlestar Galactica. 
uh, what's, can you bring a pitch in? So I brought in a pitch and I had, I had drawings done, I had all the stuff, I do this whole pitch, and I was serialized. And I was like, and then, so in the first season, we're going to start here, and we're going to go here, and we're going to develop this way, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, I, and they were like, oh, great, no, thanks. Yeah, it was awesome. it was fantastic, you know, and I, I left. And then one of the people who I knew better than uh, of the three who I pitched to called me. She said, what, did you, what were you doing? I was like, what? I just, you can't pitch a serialized show. We're not going to do that. Explain what you mean when you say serialized. So serialized, you know, a continuing storyline that changes week to week instead of resetting at the end. So normally in, in uh, and there's other shows that still exist like this, but um, normally in, in a non-serialized show, an episodic show, you start the character at point A, you take him through point B, C, D, whatever, etc., and then at the end of the show, you're back at point A. Um, whereas now, it's like you take, you start at point A, by the end of episode one, you're at point B, and then you go to point C, and like each time, and that requires people to tune in to keep watching. Whereas back then, I literally remember, they, she said to me, "We did market research, and the average viewer only watches seven episodes out of and this at the time. It was 24 episodes a season from 26, and it had, before that, it was even more per season." But she said, oh, out of 24 episodes, they watch uh, seven. So they're not going to know what's going on. They're going to tune in and go, like, what is this? I don't know what happened. This isn't the same show I tuned in into six months ago, so I'm going to turn it off. Whereas now it's the opposite. If I don't come in with a serialized pitch, mm-hmm. like The Wire, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. The Bible for The Wire. So a Bible is what you write in addition to the pilot that explains what your show is, who the characters are, what the setting is, what the themes are, and... And an idea of where you're going. Except for the on the wire, he actually wrote a synopsis of every episode of the first season. Literally in that Bible was every. That's why they knew exactly what the show was going to be. Now you're only talking ten episodes or eight, eight or ten. I can't remember, um, which is much easier to handle. But uh, it's, it's important to to be able to have a Bible so that you can these days, especially because you want to show where it's going and why people are going to keep watching every week. And it's it, it's. It's just, you know, maybe they'll go back to the other way at some point again, I don't know. But it's allowed people, from my perspective, for writers, the great thing about it is it's allowed us to tell bigger stories that you can't tell in, in, in movies either. You have two hours in, the, in, in, a, you know, in the, going to see any, or less, uh, in a movie and in, in a serialized TV show that's, uh, even on Netflix, and you get 13 episodes a season, you, that's, there's 13 hours per season. So... Um, I, I love the fact that it's gone that way. I don't know if it will do stay that way, but I hope it does. Uh, there's one, one more, and I'll get to you. Uh, one more thing about why, why playwrights are being pulled into TV. There's a big difference in the way that playwrights are being taught uh, from the way screenwriters are being taught. So if you study playwriting, almost certainly you're going to be studying with a great playwright because every playwright in America is teaching because they're all broke. Um, and you, you can't live on playwriting. There are maybe three or four playwrights who live on playwriting, which means that either you're going to move into TV or, or film, or you're going to get a teaching job. Uh, so I, if I want to hire a playwriting teacher, I can just pick my favorite play and call them, and they're teaching. If I want to hire a screenwriting teacher, it is almost impossible because screenwriters are rich. They don't need to teach. So I'm very lucky I've been able to find a couple of people who are passionate about teaching, but there is not the same number of 
people, the supply and demand with actual screenwriters teaching screenwriting, there are, there are exceptions to that, of course. There are, here in New York, there are, there are great screenwriters who are teaching, but a lot of these screenwriting gurus, Robert McKee wrote one TV movie or something that was never made, I don't think. And he's probably the most famous screenwriting guru of them all. And so what's happening is you're having classes taught by critics, by professors, PhDs, brilliant, brilliant scholars who are students of film. And they're teaching a very intellectual, you know, they're reverse engineering these finished products. And they're saying, do this and do that. And what you end up seeing is screenwriters with very little voice. They don't know how to just write something truthful because they've been trained in all these They've been taught the tools of writing, but they haven't been taught what writing is. Whereas you find a playwright, and most likely they really, if they've gone through a, a good grad program in playwriting, they really know how to write. And so then you just have to teach them some tools. Okay, cool. All right, you, what you're doing is beautiful. Let me teach you how this works. Let me teach you, you know, how, how to build an engine or, uh, you know, where the act breaks have to happen. Now you're just teaching tools on top of a really strong foundation. So one of the things you, and this is why I started this lecture by saying, you got to write what's in your heart first. You want to think about, it doesn't matter whether you're writing a play or a screenplay or a TV pilot. You guys all know most of the stuff out there is crap, right? You've seen it. You see crap on television. You see crap in the movies. Um, you see crap in your, in, your, uh, you know, in your screenwriting groups. You see crap. Most of the stuff out there is crap. And it's not crap because of poor execution. It's crap because there's nothing of the writer in it. And so you all know what it's like to be exposed to something that grabs you, right? You all know what it's like to read something that you go, holy shit, I wish I wrote that. Or to see something that, that just grabs you and shakes you and says, pay attention, this is important. And so if you can get that on the page, it almost doesn't matter what genre you're writing on. You know, if you read a spec script by somebody and it shakes you to your core, you're going to be like, well, I can't make this, but I want to have a meeting with them. I want to, I want to, what can I do with them? Um, so I think that's another part of, they're, they're pulling out the, the playwrights because the playwrights know how to write. And they know that a, a lot of the, the, you know, it depends on where you go to school, obviously, but that, that a lot of the, the film, people who have been educated in film, they, when it comes, their, their writing is on the surface. And to put a button on that, actually, I, I, I got an MFA from Columbia in film, in film, an MFA in film, and my two favorite teachers were both playwrights. Uh, one of them, whom Jake also knows, Peter Parnell, uh, who was a writer on, on West Wing, and he was literally flying to L.A. on Monday morning, working on the show, coming back Thursday night, and then he would be in the city, in New York, because he had a play going up. He would teach our class, and, uh, and then he'd start over again. He'd do that, and he'd have two years. And he, it was amazing, I mean, that he could do that, but he was just so good uh, at writing anything. Like, you just tell him, like, here's the setup, and then he could just take the characters and, like, get into them, which is what he was trying to teach us. But he, didn't, he didn't talk about structure or any of that sort of thing, which a lot of the other teachers did, which you do have to know. But he, he helped us understand that when you do know the structure, 
you have to be able to get inside the characters and, and, and take the characters on these journeys and that, that we're going to go all, want to go along with. So, uh, yeah, those are my two, 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 two favorite teachers were both playwrights. We're bouncing around, around a little bit, and I hope that that's useful to you guys. In, in, a, in a class situation, we would like, like present these thoughts in a, in a lot more coherent way. Because well, something that you said, I never thought about that, a budgetary consideration could show itself on the screen more close-ups in one hour because they don't have the budget to show big sweeping aircraft carriers. Or Never thought about that. But it, it's true that that, that forces, the, the, the way that you make your story interesting in your category or mine is to make sure that the characters are interesting. So this is the bouncing around part. For those of you, well actually for any of you that are doing any kind of half hour, if you're doing a pilot and you're creating new characters, well, if you're doing a spec script, you have to know. The characters are already there on TV, and you know them, and you better replicate them. And, and, and they wouldn't be successful on TV if they weren't uh, clear and distinctive and interesting and idiosyncratic. But you better know them, and you better be able to reflect their idiosyncrasies. But if you're creating your own pilot, I actually recommend, and this came from Norman Lear, too. Um, it's going to sound a little pedantic, but before you even break your story, before you even think of your idea for a story, before you write one word, take a legal pad and fill up a full page about each character. It, and like I said, it might sound, oh, I don't have to do that, I know who they are. Write it down, everything, what kind of dog, what they would name their dog if they had one, what kind is their favorite ice cream. 80% of it, 92% of it, you'll never, it'll never show up in your script. But you will know who they are, and then they will feel real. So I'm glad that you reminded these guys. And, and again, this might be stuff you already know, but if you don't, it's, I mean, if you already do, it's worth reinforcing anyway. You've got to know your characters thoroughly. And then after that, this also might sound pedantic, make a little chart. Let's say there's six characters. That's probably standard for a half-hour pilot. You don't want to do too many because it's really hard to service them. But after you know who they are and have filled up that, normally you should say, ah, if, I want you to be able to, I want to be able to hold up a New York Times headline in front of each of your characters and know what that character, how that character is going to react to that headline. That's how thoroughly that I want you to know that before you write them. But after you have filled up your legal pad and you know all these people, then make another chart. And I don't usually quantify like this. I'm like, I like inspiration. I like ideas, but it's not. It's like roll up your sleeves and grind it out. It's a, that's what I want to say about demythologizing. It's not like, oh, I've been inspired and I just wrote a scene. It's a grind for everybody. So part of the grind, make a little chart. Let's say there's six characters, A through, what's the sixth letter of the alphabet, F? Okay, so how does A feel about B through F? How does B feel about A, C, D, E, and F? How do, and know what each one of their bonds is with each other. And pretty much in comedy, I don't know if this is like axiomatic in an in a hour, Pretty much, you don't want your characters agreeing with each other. Yes. Because agreement is not interesting, and it's certainly not funny. So, <laughs> so you want the two Jews in a room thing. You want them to uh, be critical, or um, worried about, or self-envious of, or all the old comic tropes. There aren't any new ones. So a glutton is still funny when you want to put a new spin on gluttony. A cheapskate is still funny when you want to put a new... Uh, a, a, a vain person is still funny, but you want to put a new spin on that. But, um, like I said, I hope we're not bouncing around too much, but that, what you said about um, budgetary concerns, forcing you to write with more understanding of character, that's really interesting. And that's what I like about TV better than uh, even books and 
movies because you, you, you read the, the characters are distinct and so are their relationships. And before I shut up, uh, you um, also mentioned the difference, the production uh, differences between making a movie and making a TV show. Does everybody here know the distinction in half hour? Doesn't exist between a multi-camera show and a single camera show? Um, I keep hearing that the multi-cameras are coming back, coming back, coming back, they're cheaper. I'm old school, so I like the multi-camera because they have longer scenes, they have more character development, and it is like a play. This, Steve, might be of interest to you or not, but the multi-camera with an audience, laugh, uh, you, the, the actors are responding, and they have to hold their character, they have to tell the story the way a theater actor would. Uh, the single camera, like 30 Rock or something, they do it out of sequence, a little bit at a time, and guess what? It's like, I don't mean to be like, like, like chauvinistic about the uh, uh, multi-camera, but there's a lot of great, 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 great film actors who can't do a play, that can't keep their character for half an hour. So a lot of times, great film actors come to do a multi-camera show, and they can't, they're not good. Uh, the other way around, no problem. But um, um, that's just my own prejudice. But um, when you're writing a multi-camera show, what's multi-camera that's on the air right now? Big Bang Theory is multi-camera. Um, Two and a Half Men was multi-camera. I don't know. You guys know. But the, the trend is, you know, Modern Family is obviously not. But um, you know that the script is going to look different. Do you all know that? Okay. So you can get examples. Uh, and, and that's the other thing. Everything you need to know is on TV. And when you're writing a spec script, you just watch that TV. You can, there are people who advise, again, quantifying, take a, a stopwatch. What at what point, how many minutes into the show does the central character appear? Uh, at how many pages into the script does the plot begin? Uh, how many jokes are there per page? I don't, I'm going to assume everybody in here is already like just has a feel for that. I think that's maybe you don't have to do that. But by watching, you can tell what the tone is, what kinds of jokes do they do, how real are they, how not real are they, um, do they have the like kind of warm-hearted golden moment at the end that Modern Family does, or do they... Like Seinfeld, everybody might know this already, but in the Seinfeld writing room, they had a sign on the wall, like a little sampler. No lessons, no hugs. <laughs> so they didn't want any schmaltz, any warmth, any, any meaningful anything. They just wanted to be funny. That's okay, but I like, for example, Modern Family, because they do have a hug or a warm moment at So, like I said, I'm corny and old school, but you have to know what to show that you're replicating, what they do, and then do that. Um, you mentioned um, House Cards, right? Yeah. And then you mentioned The Wire. In our situation, we kind of bounce back and forth both. I mean, I would be curious, what would your, what would your pitch be for, the, for, for House of Cards, and what would your pitch be for The Wire when you, when you would pitch it? Because in our, in our sort of analysis, we're saying, well, it's, it's Frank. It's just, to me, it's like it's Frank's uh, ascension to power. That's it. And then I look at The Wire, I, you know, it's, it's about the world, right? Yes. Like, it's hard for me That's to say. That's how I pitched it. it. If you, if you, and I, I'm, 
go down the hall with all the pitches that he or she happened to like that week and didn't take notes on and remember what your show was and pitch it as good or hopefully better than you did. So if they can boil it down to something that simple, I mean, in this case, you know, they had an advantage, which was uh, the House of Cards was successful British series. Um, and, and same thing with, uh, with The Office, or, you know, it's been on both drama and, and uh, comedy side. Um, but ideally, you are able to, you know, center it around for hour long, you know, a central character. Like, a, friend, a couple friends of mine worked on Alias. So, I need to go back a little while, but uh, the, the, it was all about um, Sydney Bristow. That was the whole show. Everything that happened in the show, if she wasn't in this scene, who cares? Um, and the same thing with, um, this is going back really far back when I first started X-Files. Um, it was about Mulder. It, it, I mean, it wasn't about Scully. Yeah, she was there, and she was a great, you know, she was great, and she was, and she was this far, you know, this close to being a main, the main character as well, but it was really about Mulder, which is why the last season didn't work as well as the previous seasons because Mulder was gone. Um, but I remember uh, a friend of mine was a writer's assistant on the show. This is when we were like all first really starting out. And she said, oh my God, I just found out there's a formula for every X-Files episode. And on page three, you have this. And then on page five is the second you know, uh, time with references. And on page 17 is the first death. And then, and like, I was like, no, there's no way. That's so simplistic. There's no possible way that that's... I know this is like a little bit away from what you're saying, but I'm coming around to it, which is that even with that formula, I was like, nah, that's BS. Like, and then I went, went back and watched it and like broke it down. Like, okay, well, in that episode, all right, maybe this episode they did that, but not the next one. They're like, oh my, okay, the second one, well, that's a coincidence. And then the third one, like, okay, it's true. Like, there is a very specific formula that worked for that show. Maybe it wouldn't work for every show, but that show worked on. And then that gets boring, so how do you keep it interesting? And it was about the relationship between Mulder and Scully and Mulder trying to track down his sister, like there was the mythology episodes, etc. Um, this is before serialization really took hold. So, but it's leading towards, so that what you're asking about, which is, um, it's basically having every, every episode be a mythology episode. So it's thinking about how are we pushing this character you know, to, towards a certain place, which is probably the last place, it's either the place that he or she desperately wants to go, or it's the last place he or she wants to go. And if it's one of those two, you're, you can figure out what the arc is, you can break it down and figure out like, well, what's the first big, giant mile marker on that journey, and it's at the end of season, season one. Um, and then just, you know, in your, in your Bible, you'll have a list of, like, say, a few episodes, specific episodes, but you'll, that'll be in context of the entire arc of the series, which you'll write out, like, sort of an approach for. Do you see, do you see that it goes, um, you will write five seasons, or are they usually just go never first? Because things changed. Yeah. In True Detective, I read that the last line that was said in the show was the line that they wrote to the Coles. Yes, line. I actually it's heard that too. It's eight shows, right? Yeah. But I've seen shows change, I justified it, I've been binging it, just kind of getting uh -huh. through it. And it's just changed from the first season to the fourth. And yeah. I'm like, I'm wondering how much do they do with front say, I'm writing this four season arc, but these days they have Right. My experience is that it's, they only know one season at a time. Okay. And so I have, so because I started in that era of like X-Files and, um, you know, this is like late, late 90s, um, all of my friends who, all of us who are lucky to, you know, get some work, now 
you know, went through the alias phase and then now do like lost. So 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 Damon Lindelof like working on Lost. And I remember talking to him one day. I think it was because you did, did during the third or fourth season. Uh, I, we were talking about Star Trek because he was he, he was consulting and writing on, on the first the new Star Trek movie JJ direct JJ was directed. And so I was there for that reason. But he while we were waiting for the meeting to start, he was like, oh man, I just don't know what to do. <laughs> I was like, why not? What's the problem? He said. I don't, know, I don't know when the show ends. It can wander ten years. Like what, I know what the ending is. Like I know what the ending is, but I don't know how to space it out. Like how much do I reveal? Like I don't know. And the, literally the day he, the studio said, studio, and, and by the way, there's always a studio and a network in in, in TV. So you're dealing with two entities, um, at least, and then the production company. Um, but the day the studio and the network said, okay, you're going to have this. Your last season is going to be this season seven. He was like, oh. Thank you so much. <laughs> now I know how I can. But so he had an idea where he was ending up. He didn't know, you know, more than one season right. at a time because he just couldn't know more than that. It was not possible. With show now, so that's it lost. That's been off for two, three years now. So now we're in another era where the, you know, a lot of shows are only doing 10, 13 episodes, kind of like more of a British model or or a, um, you know, paid cable model um, on on the. On, on, on broadcast uh, uh, networks like the the twenty four whatever it's called the, whatever it's called last day I don't know whatever it's called uh, that's airing now like it's just a limited run it's not a movie of the week it's just a limited run so they obviously know the whole thing because they know it's going to be it's not a multi season show I don't think you can have more than one season and you also do listen to what the audience is responding to and and things change and writers change writing staffs change. Um, writing uh, heroes, for example, I think is a good example. Oh, lasted, uh, this will be last example. Yeah, sorry, uh, it would last three seasons basically. It's all messed up, but basically three seasons. And I had a friend who worked on that show. Which, uh, most bizarrely written show. Like I can't understand how they did it. Everybody was assigned a character, and for each episode, you would write this character. Like break down the episode in the room, and then you write the scenes with that character in them. That's your character, and, you, and then uh, then there's a person who makes the Franken script, which is assembling all the scenes from all the different writers, and then the final writer then made it, tried to make it cohesive. On top of that, Tim Kring, who was the executive producer, showrunner, left to go to work on another show, and literally you can see the episode where it happens. Like it's like boom, like like wait, wait just, something just happened. I don't know, I don't know what, but it just doesn't feel like it's working anymore. So. So sometimes it's just a matter of you know who's actually there in the room and who had an initial idea and that sort of thing. But as far as what you're doing at this point, all you, I feel like all you need to know is one season's work. I don't think the executives are going to be like, okay, season ten. Do you think you know they're not going to go that far because they can't go that far? They've heard twenty pitches before you walk in the door that day. So I think you'd be across the board one season's work where you're ending at least where you're going to end up. It's really interesting to me because it's quite categorically the opposite of that. I know almost nobody, you go in and you bullshit that you know what the season is going to be. <laughs> but almost, no, I swear, I'm not, I'm not even trying to be funny. Sell a pilot and nobody, you have no idea what episode two is going to be, let alone the whole season. Now, I think that there are some anthologies. I know that this new Arrested Development, they had that whole thing mapped out right. beforehand. But that's a relatively new. It's, they're all self-contained. And you might find this of interest, anecdotally, maybe everybody knows this already, but David Milch, the Deadwood, 
he went to HBO with the uh, a, a, a series about ancient Rome. He wanted to, the theme was bringing law and government to a lawless region. They said, "Oh my God, we love you. We want to be in business with you, and we love this theme. But we already bought a show about Rome. Come back, but can you?" Check? And he went back and put it in the Wild West. But it was intended to be Rome, so he started with a theme and then just stuck it there. I just wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about uh, George's class and Jerry's class. The concept is we run them like real writers' room. So you're not only getting the experience of writing a really good spec or a really good pilot, you're also learning exactly what it's going to feel like when you do get staffed on the show, and you're learning how to negotiate things like different ideas from the writing staff, you know, having hearing feedback on your work, you know, breaking down an outline of your of your piece. Um, and so the way it works is the teachers play the role of showrunner. Um, each student is a staff writer. Um, it's a really small class, so it's it's intimate. It's about the size of a writer's room. It's highly collaborative. It's collaborative. And, and it's highly collaborative. So so you pitch your your idea. Uh, everyone in the in the room helps you break the story. You go off and write it. People collaborate with jokes. People collaborate with structure. And you go off and write it, and then you get a one-on-one -on -one, uh, with Jerry or with George to to discuss what you've written or discuss your outline wherever you are in the in the process. It, there's really no no class like it. Um, I've sat in multiple times, and it's it's really it's really something special if if you want to if you want to do that. So, do you guys want to say have anything you'd like to say about about your classes? Um. They're getting results. People are writing good scripts. And I, I came in like a snob saying, oh, well, there's no, you can't as a beginner, but you can. I mean, there, I was a snob and thought, oh, either you're a good writer or you're not a good writer. Oh, anybody who's smart can, there's stuff you've got to learn. And it's, it's being learned in our classes by doing. And I, and I, I like what Jake was just saying. You, you, there's two levels of learning. You're learning how to write and structure and tell a story and develop characters and write jokes but you're also getting a feel for the process. And even when you're helping the other person, another person, write, you're exercising that muscle and you're getting better yourself, even when it's not your own story or your own script. So we, we, we have, we're getting results, people like it, and I always walk out of there feeling really good. Well, and I think what's, what's important is this real, real emphasis on, store, on your story, not your script, which is your final product, but like actually creating or understanding your characters and the story itself. So beating it out on the whiteboard, you know, by act, you know, depending on what your exact format is. But, you know, like, in a one, one hour now, it used to be four acts, now it's six. So knowing that and, and, and watching different people's scripts and, and, and making comments going, like, well, that doesn't feel right and getting people's opinions. So everybody is getting feedback from everybody and you take what you want. You don't have to take everybody's feedback because they give it to you. That's key, too, is no, no one no, what to say. Yeah, no, that's not what I'm doing. But by the way... Yeah. Uh, I don't know this, but I think six, it's not aesthetic. It's just to sell more toothpaste, right? Exactly. There's no reason. Oh, no. Yeah. It's, from, it's for money. It's all for money. Is that cable as well, though? Is that all six? So, acts? so with cable, with pay cable, it, there's no act breaks. I mean, it's just, it looks like a feature script. Just it's only 60 pages. And it's 60 pages as opposed to more like 50 because you have commercials. Yeah, it's, it's technically 44 minutes, but because there's more 
dialogue, which takes more space on the page, it, they tend to be you know, more in the 50-55 range. Uh, so it, it just depends. Um, even some episodes of you know, HBO shows are over now. You know, they'll be 63 minutes or something. So it really does depend, but, but when you do have act breaks, they are pretty much now at this point standard on, pay, on, on standard cable and on broadcast of six. But I also think what Jake was mentioning about learning how to work with other people <laughs> is so, especially creative people who have ideas and are energized to like work on this stuff, um, learning how to stand up for yourself, but also learning when to listen to other people becomes very important because if you want to have a career, you need to be able to do both of those things at the right, at the right time. Um, so I think that is like a secondary but highly beneficial aspect of and working. And the last stuff. thing, to back that up, the last thing I would say in the first talk introducing everybody and talking about what we're going to do and work together, and, and, and especially with comedy, I suppose even action, but especially comedy, Everybody's going to say something stupid at some point. But I say don't be afraid and don't let anybody censor you or feel... Because the stupidest idea in the world might trigger somebody else to say the opposite of that is the best idea in the world. So even the stupid idea has contributed. Wait, the way we made it easier to do is we say, like, so here's the bad version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but imagine you trying to be funny is a little bit like just standing up naked in front of everybody. And they're, imagine if they laugh at you and somebody rolls their eyes and says, oh, yeah, oh, that's real original. Oh, that's good. It inhibits you, it closes you up, you don't, we're all insecure, you know, we're human beings are insecure. So, I, the last thing I tell everybody at the end, don't be an asshole. And that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta be encouraging and share and help, and even if you're going to criticize somebody, find a way to do it that's uh, constructive. Yeah. So, that's the idea is, we want you to leave with, first off, we want you to leave with a script. Yeah. We want you to leave with knowing how to build a script. We want you to leave with a script that's better than you could have written yourself, uh, but that's you. And you're also leaving with the skills that you're going to need not to sell a script, not just to sell a script, but to actually build a career and to know if this is right for you. You know, if, if you have the experience of a writer's room and you're like, but they have ideas and they asked me to change my, my piece, then probably you don't want to be a TV writer. You know, so it's about... It's about getting a, a taste of, of what this is really going to be like uh, before you spend the next you know, two years of your life working your way into it. <laughs>